He smashed pretty much every billboard and streaming record that matters. It has already been streamed more than a billion times. Billion. People still to this day point to, this is the moment everything changed. But whether you agree with those claims or not, this podcast isn't really about him. Either you're not an astute businessman or you're inherently racist when it comes to black music in this country. This is not a Drake podcast. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Martine Saint-Victor. And I'm Isabelle Racicot. Welcome to Seat at the Table. Welcome to the show where each week we sit down with guests who are shaping pop culture. Well, people we would like to have over for dinner. And because we're old friends, we let you in on our dinner table conversations. And I don't know if you've heard, but for the first time in history, according to Nielsen Music, hip hop has become the most listened to genre in the United States. So we sit down with one of the pioneers of hip hop, the legendary Grandmaster Flash. And on this week's Elephant in the Room, we tackle the glorification of failure. And we'll be joined by Ian Valiskakis, the author of The Magnificent Mistake, who will help moderate the debate between Isabelle and I. <laughs> But first, at our table, the legendary Grandmaster Flash. Grandmaster Flash, welcome to Seat at the Table. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And welcome to Canada. How was your uh, going through customs this time? <laughs> this guy's got interesting customs. It was much quicker this time. It's normally... They want to scan the world, make sure you are who you are, and <laughs> you guys are pretty thorough. Let's just, let's just use those words. But you made it. We're happy you did. Welcome. Thank you. So Thank speaking you. of customs, you play all over the world more and more. Yes. And how would you describe the difference in the crowds that you see? I think uh, the difference is, first of all, uh, coming up, I was probably in the best situation ever when I was a tot to be introduced to so many different genres of music. Yeah. So when I became older, it, 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 it's such a plus now. So for example, what would be killer hot here would be whack in Japan. And what would be killer hot in Japan would be incredible in Australia. You know, so it's like there are different, everybody has their different tastes of what they consider to be enjoyable and, and what's considered to be like hot music, you know, yeah. so that there has been a plus for me. And is there a big difference between the crowds that you're playing for today versus the ones when you first started? There's a parallel there. They all want to know how did I do it and when. And like even in young people today, it's like they really, they, they approach me all the time, Grandmaster, how was it back then? How did y'all do it? You know, because we did this with nothing, mm. you know, to duplicate copies of vinyl and two turntables, you know, and uh, here we are almost 40 plus years later and it's big business now, mm. you know, so. And you talk about 20 year olds coming up to you. So you have 50 year olds who know who you are, appreciate the fact that you're a pioneer and now you have 20 year olds. So do you find that 
the youth nowadays are more is the youth is more interested in the foundation of hip hop and will that not guarantee its perennity the fact that we understand and respect the process and the foundation and where it comes from I don't think anything is guaranteed but it's wonderful mm. that the next crop of, of hip hoppers are so interested in the beginning and I guess the, the, the million dollar question is where do they get the reason to ask the question so I asked them, and they says, "Well, my mom, you know, or my my uncle, or you know, it's a it's a trail of of ages mm -hmm. that have taught them to ask the questions when they see me." And I'm like quite surprised. Or I'll play some songs, you know, for a, a 18 year old, and, and they're singing it, and I'm looking at them like, "You weren't even thought of," <laughs> when, you know, when, you know, when this song was played, and it's it's quite wonderful, you know. But what's really important about the birth of hip hop is you know, us having nothing, but how we found our music is in songs. And every song has a great part. Mm -hmm. And it could be pop, and it could be rock, or jazz, or blues, or funk, or disco, or R&B, alternative, Caribbean, Latin, that break, you know, so many hip hoppers today that don't know that. Mm. You know, so when a 20-year-old walks up to me and says, is it true that you took two songs and you took this one party and you stretched it and made it longer, and this is what people spoke on, and that makes it the birth of rap, right? I go, yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> kind of does, yeah, yeah. Well, I've interviewed a lot of international stars, and sometimes they feel a pressure to be up to the image that they have portrayed or what people expect from them. Uh, do you have that pressure? Do you feel that pressure as a pioneer? I think the only pressure I have is there aren't enough people from my era that can go around and spread this, 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 this information of the beginnings. That's probably the only pressure that I really feel. You know, so every chance possible. You're like the last Beatle? Oh, maybe, <laughs> something like that. You know, so what, what I had is uh, my team back home uh, decided that we should step up the presentation. So tonight when I play, yeah. while I'm playing, there's visuals that's going to be playing behind me of people, places, streets, things, objects, all these things that were around for the last 40 plus years so that the information is mentally digestible. So I'm going to show you streets of where like Biggie lived, you know, and where I came from when I was nothing and, and where Hurt came from and where Bam came from and Jay-Z when he was living in the projects and all these kind of things. People should know these things, mm -hmm. but sometimes talking about it doesn't become mentally digestible. Sometimes you need to see it. So they, they're going to see Marcy Projects and they're going to see how it is. They're going to see 2730 Dewey Avenue where I came up from when I, when I was nothing, you know, and I look at 2017 as a, a, a repeat of the 70s because people want to know. Like everything in the world is cyclical. It goes and then eventually it comes back. And I look at 2017, especially with all the um, programs that have been coming out and even more and more and more, they are desperately trying to replicate what it was. You the know. television programs, you mean? Yeah, yeah mm. like Netflix and, 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 and HBO. And, and, and I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. It's like I look at these programs and I say, ah, they're trying to go back to there. Yeah, mm. and, and, and it's kind of cool. But I think that it's really important that the world needs to know where this thing was and that it is the 
serious reason on why this is why it's become so explosive and the get down was so impactful in in only one one season are we going are we going to see you again doing television projects what's next for you on tv i've got two offers i can't say what they are but yes I, you can no We're i can i can i know i can't i can't i can't i can't it's, it's only between well, between no. between uh, uh, us uh, and yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. you're at our table <laughs> no. grandmaster flash you I, I, can no, talk to us you know because you, know, you know legal things come into play <laughs> so it's still early we have lawyers <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and I can't, and I can't, I mean, I can't really speak on it, but I do think that it is critically important that we continue to spread the information because in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you came from. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us don't know the actual beginning of came from, like where it came from. So people like myself have to speak and put it on the screen, you mm -hmm. know. Were you surprised that the, 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 the show wasn't renewed for a second season or you were sort of expecting it? No, what had happened was um, the show broke all the records that it could break. But the situation was Boz, myself, and, a, a, and, and two other critical people that put that together could not align our schedules because that took 24 months to put together. And $120 million for the get down? Yeah, you know, $140. $140. <laughs> you know, so, so we went over budget, but you got to realize when we, when, we, it. When, we was putting this, when we was putting this together, you know, I, I remember many days sitting down talking to Boss. And Boss Norman, I just want to explain. Boss Norman, you know, we would sit down and we would talk. And as we was knitting this thing together, we didn't know what this, was, what this was going to be. And I can remember times when Netflix was coming in just periodically just to see what it was, what you were doing. You yeah, know. in your business. And then, and then <laughs> you know, they're like, hmm. And then months ago by, hmm. And then months ago, whoa. And then months ago by, they says, we're going we're gonna to put this in every country in every nice. language. And, and it, broke all, it broke all the records. But it took a, a lot of... Uh, love a lot of time mm. you know a lot of sleepless nights to put that together so we couldn't align all our schedules to come right behind it but the world is screaming so mm. we got to figure it out you have We're, to but the success of the series is really proof that hip-hop is is mainstream and there there are examples of that every day snoop dogg has a tv show with martha stewart yeah, right. force magazine has its annual list of richest hip-hop artists so it's out there yeah and you hang out with anna wintour you go to the med gala in new york you guys have been looking around well, so yeah. how else has the the fact that hip-hop is more mainstream, how does it manifest itself? I mean, you, I say the Met Gala, but I'm sure there are other examples where you say worlds are colliding. Oh, well, I, I think that for me, it's musically. There was a point in time when I couldn't play certain vintage songs because the world wouldn't have understood that this James Brown 20-second loop was a sample in this song or this Bee Gees loop was in this song mm -hmm. or this... Uh, uh, this Michael Jackson loop was in this song. It was, you know, I remember talking to press before we even got to doing the get down and doing stuff of that nature. They would look at me like I had a, a, a third eye on my forehead. Like, <laughs> what do you, so you're saying that when you put your fingertips on the record with duplicate copies of record and you took a 10 second break and then you extended it and then people talked on it, I mean, it was that before it was that, I'm saying, Yes, and they just never, it was extremely frustrating trying to explain that. Because so you now, made it an instrument. Yeah, yeah. so it was, it was very very frustrating for me to just walk away from that journalist and saying, he didn't get it. It just flew over his head. So now it just makes it so much easier. So now I put together 
you know, this presentation, you know, hip hop, mm. people, places, and things. I want to get back to the dirt on your relationship with Anna Wintour from Vogue. Oh, we're just good friends. That's it. And she's so right. powerful in her business. <laughs> she's so powerful in her world, and she's a very good friend of, of Boz Lerman's. You know, so I got to meet her, and, and um, I remember, you know, Boz telling me, we're going to book you for this party. And I'm like, you know, me <laughs> being the professional that I am and knowing that I'm pretty good, she says, you're going to play this party, and you're going to play it in a place that's probably not normal. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> so when he says it's going to be a the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I said, there's statues of stuff in there that is like, with the bass hit them things and break them, you can't replace those things. And uh, <laughs> it was quite a, a scary experience. And then um, I remember Boston them saying to me, the type of people that go to these type of galas normally don't dance. He says, so don't feel bad. While you up there, you work in the, you trying to work the crowd and they just don't, do anything, don't feel bad. So I'm looking at Boz, and I'm saying, what? <laughs> you know. Why am I going there? <laughs> no, I says, I'll take the job. So I, I took mm -hmm. it, and... Um, Do you remember uh, who was in the audience that night? Because it's always like, Beyonce, start, yeah, and it was star -studded. Dion, Tom Brady, It was star-studded, for sure. And yeah. like a lot of times, you know, when the singing, because it was a singing act, and then it was me. So a lot of times, it says, when the singing act is finished, the crowd just scatters out the room. So I'm saying... Okay, so when the uh, the weekend was performing and then mm -hmm. they got off and I just played hip hop style and <laughs> nobody went to the other after parties. <laughs> they stayed with you. And it's a New York crowd, they get it, right? It just shows that, you know, everybody has a love of music, but it, it just goes back to my hip hop theory, which is it has to be in pop or rock or jazz or blues or funk or disco or R&B into alternative or Caribbean or Latin. I'm going to get you one way mm -hmm. or another. And when I get you, then I'm going to get you. Right. And it, it were, it's been pretty successful for me for quite a few decades now. So now I get a chance to really go into my collection and play all the songs from like the 60s and the mm -hmm. 70s. And I go to 80s and 90s mm -hmm. and 2000s. I can... I can really move it around now, and it's mm. really quite interesting. Let's talk about 2007. You were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 30 years ago, shot her around the world was fired out of the South Bronx. It would change our musical and cultural landscape forever. Sting was called hip hop. We credit three bold pioneers for its creation. DJ Cool Herc, Africa Bambata, and the man we celebrate here tonight is hip-hop's first inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Grandmaster Flash. In your acceptance speech, you were very introspective and a little bit emotional. And you, you thank your sister, Penny. Yeah. Got my big sis over there that helped me through this 30 years ago. Penny, she's in the building. What's up, sis? Tell us about family. I think, you know, what it was is um, there was a period of time when things got really bad for me and um, I had gotten involved in drugs. And, and how I got involved, it was when I was sort of testing it, it was doing nothing. You know, so for example, like when you do marijuana, well, maybe I don't know, but you get a, you get a feeling. If you have a glass of alcohol, you get a feeling. Now you're well, speaking our language, yes. alcohol. Right. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> but cocaine, you don't get a feeling right away. So when it finally happened, I was hooked. I was in a serious jam, and sis saved my life. You know, by grabbing me and and and, and 
allowed me to detox myself in her home, you know, so that, that was really special for me, and it allowed me to get back to what I birthed and what I created, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it, but it was a pretty rough time, and I do have a book, you know, that tells the whole full story of that. And in fact, Grandmaster Flash, you're like a minority here. You're stuck with two women, wow. but you grew up with four sisters. Yeah. How has that influenced who you are? Mm, taught me respect for women. It also taught me how you, how you guys think, sort of, kind of. How when do you, when we you, think? When you're That's another book right there. <laughs> me being like one of, the, one of the second youngest in the family, you know, uh, you have to realize during this period of time, I was trying to figure out how items that plug into the wall, why did they operate, did they do? So what I would do is turn it over and unscrew the back off and look at these little tiny parts inside and I would try to take it apart and put it back together. So I was public enemy number one in my house. Like mm-hmm. the, the hairdryer didn't work, you know, <laughs> the stereo didn't work. They, they knew. It's like, that damn Joe, he's been in here. But I was just so into, I was so fascinated with the inner working of things that, you know, were uh, electrical. So when I got with a turntable, it was just marriage made in heaven. You have an open invitation to this table. We mean it. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Please do come back anytime. Uh, thank you so much and thank you for having me. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you, Grandmaster Flash. That was fun for hip-hop heads. Thank you, Grandmaster Flash. And now, the elephant in the room. And the topic this week is the glorification of failure. And we invited a guest to yes. join in this conversation. Yes, yeah, so we have our friend Ian Valaskakis, who is the author of The Magnificent Mistake, How You Can Earn More from Failure Than You Learn from Success. How so, Ian Valaskakis? Well, first of all, uh, thanks for letting me have a seat at your table, ladies. Yes. Um, and uh, let me just attack first the premise, which is uh, the glorification of failure. I absolutely agree that uh, failure has become a bit of a fetish in today's business world in particular and in the culture in general. And in fact, you need to look no further than Silicon Valley, an episode in season two where the much ridiculed and ridiculous CEO, uh, Gavin Belson, actually talks about failure as a way to grow. And when you're being ridiculed by Silicon Valley, you know you're onto something that's kind of jumped the shark. The point being, what those in dying business sectors call failure, we in tech know to be pre Greatness. <laughs> but that's how I feel. Anyways, go on. <laughs> so, so I think we can all agree that uh, failure is a bit too much of a buzzword these days. Learning from failure, fail mm-hmm. fast, fail often, fail small, that kind of thing. But beneath that surface observation, I think, is a very important insight, which is that uh, mistakes are an incredibly rich source of learning material. And if we ignore it, uh, we're actually missing most of the material in life. Okay, we're going to get back to this. The reason why we decided to talk about this uh, this week is because, Martine, you really hate the sentence, uh, failure is good for you. Yes, I think sometimes it applies. But what I find is that in this public uh, discourse, we don't have room to mourn failure. So it makes it difficult to, to come out and say, you know, I failed and, you know, I've been in a funk for three months because I failed. And for someone like me, for example, failure is very, very difficult to manage. And so when you have a failure and then you're surrounded by mantras, it's good for you, grow from it, you'll learn. It's very difficult. And also you fail because you're not good at something. 
And so you have to be able to realize and say, well, why did I fail? Did I, f- I wasn't good, so then I need to move on. Sometimes you fail because pr- you're good at it, but you weren't well prepared. I just feel like we need to break down, segment the type of failures. It's difficult. But, but we grew up thinking that failing was a bad thing. Often failure is a bad thing. That's what I'm saying. We need to be able to, to recognize that. Well, I don't think it's a bad thing. And the thing is that if you have the attitude that failure is a bad thing, you're going to stop yourself from trying to do things. The best things I've done in my life is because I didn't care whether I was going to fail or not. And mm-hmm. I just tried it. Sometimes it worked, but sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. But if I see failure as a bad thing, it will stop me from trying and challenging myself. No, of course. A good example of how we can't always say that failure is not bad Can you imagine if you have a child who failed grade two? What do you tell the child? Do you tell the child, oh, that's great, you failed grade two? No, he, no. Fa- he failed because unprepared, didn't do the homework. This is what I'm talking about. We need to recognize that failure is often our own doing. So let me try to find a, a happy medium between the two. And this yeah. is going to sound ex- exceedingly diplomatic <laughs> of me to say, but I, I agree with both of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, number one, I think that we shouldn't glorify failure, but we should destigmatize it. And, mm-hmm. and basically take a lot of the negativity out of failure and mistakes. Because as Isabel, you pointed out, you know, we were brought up to fear failure, to consign it to the corner of our yeah. mind, to never think about it. And Martine, your point is well taken that if we just glorify it and say, oh, it's okay, it's fine, yeah. you know, you can fail as many times as you want, then you'll never learn about it. So I'd say number one is failures are what I sometimes describe as the great white sharks in your mind, in the sense that they have this amazing power to terrify, uh, both in the terms of the mistakes you might make and the mistakes mm. you have made. But in fact, the risk of a mistake is actually much lower, just like it is much less likely to be attacked by a great white shark in the ocean. And so the way around this is changing the polarity of a mistake from negative to positive uh, by learning from it. And it's a very simple equation. Basically, error plus learning equals what I call a magnificent mistake. And so if you can learn a system and develop a habit yeah. to learn from your mistakes, then a mistake is no longer a terrible thing that you don't ever want to talk about. It's actually an opportunity to grow. To your point, uh, Martine, the absolute first step in my process from learning from a mistake is to own it. Yeah. So people come up to me and say, that's the most important part. And that's the part I've had the most trouble with is owning it, accepting it, making it your own. And how do you do that? Well, by looking at its ugly face in the mirror, and then trying to get something positive out of it. You know, one of my favorite sentences, and I have it on my wall near my office, is sometimes I win, sometimes I learn. I think it comes from Oprah. She was speaking at the Stanford Graduate School of Business in 2014, and this is what she said about failure. There's a supreme moment of destiny calling on your life. Your job is to feel that, to hear that, to know that. And sometimes when you're not listening, you get taken off track. You get in the wrong marriage, the wrong relationship, you take the wrong job. Yeah, but it's all leading to the same path. There are no wrong paths. There are none. There's no such thing as failure, really, because failure is just that thing trying to move you in another direction. So you get as much from your losses as you do from your victories, because the losses are there to wake you up. It may take a while before you understand it, but then I find if you don't see failure that way, 
you tend to have depressions. You tend to feel less confident, have a lower self-esteem because you're just thinking, I failed and there's no point to it. And the example you gave about a child that is, has to do redo his grade two, well, he has to learn that he has to work hard in order to pass school. He may never do it again because mm -hmm. he will have learned yes, from but, that. Yes, but my point is that you don't tell the kid, oh, it's okay, you felt, no. But nobody it's, it's, says that at first when you, you know... You lost your job because you didn't do a good job in the first place. Nobody says, oh, well, great. I'm happy. I'm yeah. going to learn from it. Yeah. What I'm saying is that you need to take it in, but understand that there's a reason why and see that you're going to end up learning from it. No, that's fine. The so you don't stay in yes. that. The philosophy is fine. I get the philosophy. What I, I think we need to stop is the glorification. In the clip we just heard, when Oprah... You were rolling your eyes. Yes. Uh, Oprah says there are no wrong paths. That's not true. Sometimes there are wrong paths, and that's what I'm talking about. And for me, that goes in the same family as saying um, you should have no regrets. Of course you should have regrets. There's no space to recognize that we're in the wrong, on the wrong path, that we, we've chosen the wrong career, we've chosen the wrong man, we've chosen the wrong relationship. We have to be able to say, well, I was wrong, period. There's no glorifying in that. Where I disagree with you, Martine, and, and perhaps even with you, Isabelle, is that... Uh, Get out. <laughs> <laughs> I know, ana anathema, uh, is that actually this is very hard. Uh, you know, <clears throat> learning from mistakes is actually something we don't do very well at all. Mm. Uh, in fact, we won't do it unless we're forced to do it. And we all know people around this table and in our lives who make the same mistakes over and over again. Well, around and this table, that yeah, would be Isabel and myself. Okay. <laughs> Including myself. <laughs> Ladies, you're not alone on this. I wrote an entire book about mistakes and the mistakes <laughs> I've made and the mistakes I've watched other people make. The truth of the matter is that people make the same mistakes over and over again. And generally, I'm considered very pro-mistake. But the mistakes I I'm absolutely opposed to are the ones we repeat. And so mm. one of the mantras I live by is always make new mistakes. And you see, I, you see yes. there you you've you just lost me because you're encouraging mistake make new mistakes. You're encouraging it. Well, meaning if you're going to make a mistake, don't make the same mistake twice. I think that's what you mean. Exactly. And when and I how say about don't make mistakes? I know that's impossible, but I think it's it's something to aim at. You have to be prepared for failure. But in the same token, why don't we aim higher and say let's make as few mistakes as possible. You can still grow without making mistakes. That's my point. I, I'm not actually so sure. L let me ask you something, Martin. Mm -hmm. Do you play tennis? Or, I or, watch tennis. Okay, you watch tennis. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the answer is no. Okay. Well, <laughs> she never lifted a racket in her life. I did. I used to. And then, sure. you know when what? you were three. And, and, and you know what happened? You, you were bad at it. And Thank you. you. And I said, you know what? I'm okay. a much better tennis analyst yeah. than I am a tennis player. I w I'll bet you one other thing, though. You're a much be better tennis rallier than you are a tennis player. And anybody who's ever played tennis... Uh, you know, For the sake of argument, sure. When you're warming up and you're hitting the ball and yeah. there's nothing at play, nothing at stake, you're, it's amazing how good you are. You know, you're hitting yeah. the ball down the line, mm -hmm. your first serves are going in, uh, no problem. As soon as the game lights go on and something's at stake, when you can possibly make a mistake, you tighten up mm -hmm. and you yeah. end up becoming much less of a player than you are. Mm -hmm. And in fact, research has showed that if you fear a mistake, you're four times more likely to make that mistake. <gasps> Four times. Four times. And so the trick is to convince yourselves that it's okay to make a mistake. You don't want to seek them out as an, oh, I'll make mistakes every day mm -hmm. throughout the day. Uh, but as long as they're new ones in the sense that you're not making the same ones. And so you're learning from those mistakes. You're not making that particular mistake, but you're making new mistakes. The way to become great is actually to make a lot of mistakes. And the other thing I would say is 
I don't agree that you can grow without making mistakes. In fact, the greatest uh, achievers in life were basically people who were told that what they wanted to do was impossible and yeah. they said, different, screw you. Different story. That, that to me, night and day. Why? Night and day. There's a difference between some between um, getting the, the, the oomph to go after what you want, bec- you know, despite the fact that people said you cannot do it and making a mistake. I mean, the, I, the well, only difference is they <clears throat> succeeded. In the case of Barack Obama, who you, mm-hmm. you know, Martin and I are. You're just huge, going after my heart. Huge I already <laughs> like you. Yeah, relax. <laughs> When he ran for president the first time, they said, it's too soon, Barack. You shouldn't, you shouldn't yes. rush your, you know, right. jump your, your place in line. Take right. your time. Right. And he said, no, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Now, it would have been seen as a mistake if he had failed and he mm-hmm. had never become president. They said he was too ambitious, too mm-hmm. early. He mm-hmm. didn't wait his time. Mm-hmm. But in fact, he went at exactly the right time. But how did we know that? Because he didn't make a mistake and because he succeeded. So it's a bit of a circular mm-hmm. argument in that people think it was success because it was successful and it was a mistake if it, if it didn't turn out the way yeah, you wanted. Yeah. Um, I find that sometimes, you know, when we tell people you can be whatever you want, that's true. But sometimes you shouldn't try to be whatever you want. Exhibit A, Donald <laughs> Trump. I mean, yes, he, he is president, but he's really not good at it. And some, you know what I mean? It's like, would you want to be in a restaurant where the chef is a batch is a bad chef? No. So yes, you can be a chef, but you have to be a great one. Yes, you can be president, but you have to be a great one. You you can't expect everybody to be great at something. Well, that's my point. We should. I don't think there's anything bad in expecting greatness out of people. If you go to the doctor, you want your doctor to be the best doctor. Not the best doctor in the world. I want him to be good. I want him to know what he's talking about. If he's if he's You know, if he went through university and got all his degrees, I'd like to presume that it's because he's good enough to be a doctor. Okay, question. Do you want your doctor to be a doctor who was top of his class who who, who or a doctor? But there's that no be- room for that, everybody to be at the top of your class. How can you what have I'm 15 saying, people in a what class? What I'm saying no, is that but you it have doesn't to make aim. Sense. No, what I'm saying is that there's nothing wrong with wanting to aim for greatness. There's nothing wrong with... Um, expecting the best out of people. That's what I'm saying. So, I know, y- but it's just not going to happen. <clears throat> Let's be realistic. That's So one I, way we can mm. reconcile those two positions is actually to say that the way... <laughs> we become- need a mediator now. <laughs> I think Ian was supposed to be a guest. Now he's the mediator. What happened here? <laughs> well, Ian, Isabel and I are an old couple, so... <laughs> You know, don't worry. Yeah, we're still gonna have dinner together. I, I, I have no no uh, no worries about that. No, what I would say is that uh, actually, to Martin's point, the way to become great is actually to make a lot of mistakes. And in fact, one of your previous guests, Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. talks about this in a book called Outliers, mm-hmm. where yeah. he talks about deliberative pra- deliberate practice. And what is deliberate practice? It's basically playing, you know, if you, to use the ten- tennis analogy again, it's playing against someone who's better, finding out where you're making your mistakes, and focusing your practice on remediating those particular mistakes. So when you talk about a doctor uh, becoming great, how did he or she become great? Well, they made a lot of mistakes along the way, hopefully mm-hmm. on cadavers, hopefully in corpses at medical school. Nobody, right. Hopefully nobody you know. And <laughs> learned what to avoid when you know, the lights were on and when you know, everything counted. The way to get great is to uh, make fewer mistakes. And in order to make fewer mistakes in the future, you have to make oh. more mistakes mm-hmm. now where it's safe to make mistakes. Well, practice makes perfect. That's exactly. That's it for this week on Seat at the Table. I'm Martine Saint-Victor. And I'm Isabelle Racicot. Seat at the Table is produced by Alan Johnson and Melissa Fundira. 
Technical work by Dominique Baudouin and Tanya Gancheva. We want to hear what you have to say. On Twitter, use the hashtag ACCBC and tweet us directly at Martine Montreal and at Isabelle Racico. We're also on Facebook, Seat at the Table CBC, or shoot us an old-fashioned email, seat at cbc.ca. To make sure you never, ever, ever miss an episode of Seat at the Table, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to review us. Be kind. Seat at the Table is a CBC original podcast. To hear more shows, visit cbc.ca slash original podcasts. Next week at the table. Why do we have anchors? We have anchors because we needed someone to fill time while we changed the newsreel. Um, you know, that's mm. not a problem anymore. But also there <laughs> but, but, were, you know, a phase that you could trust. And that is relevant. Yeah. I can think, uh, I still think it's important, but it's not as important as it used to be. Uh, certainly in a world where the sources are so numerous. Mm -hmm. uh, at yeah. a time where you had tree networks and things were in fact very slow, the anchor was that conduit. Mm -hmm. you, you wanted to relate to a personality and also to experience. Nowadays, I think you don't necessarily need that in order to get acquainted with the topic of the day. Until then, au revoir! Au revoir. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.